Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kimberly Mack, and I'm a host on the channel. Today we'll be talking... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kimberly Mack, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Fink about the relentless pursuit of tone, timbre, and popular music, a collection he edited with Melinda Latour and Zachary Walmark. Robert Fink, welcome to the show. Hi. (laughs) Robert, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I have been doing musicology which is my main field for about, wow, almost 30 years now. Uh, I was born in Boston, uh, was a typical sort of what you might call classical music nerd, uh, very interested in art music. Uh, I actually was a music major at college. I went to Yale as an undergrad and got heavily into uh sort of the cult of serious music. Uh, I have a master's degree in music theory from the Eastman School of Music, so I was still sort of pulling into that uh, academic art music world. Uh, I did my PhD at Berkeley uh, in California, and that is where things began to shift, as I guess often happens when people go to Berkeley. Uh, So my dissertation work and my early career work was on avant-garde contemporary music, in particular uh, minimalist repetitive music. So I began to sort of move out and away from what you might consider the center of the canon of classical music. Got more interested in electronic music. Uh, That caused me to get interested in uh, dance music. Uh, at which point I got interested in popular music. I began to teach classes on popular music and uh, experienced the challenges of how to uh, really communicate about that music, understand how it works. Uh, And for the last 20 years or so, I've been a professor of musicology at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, uh, where I also uh, am in charge of a small music industry program. So I split my time basically between uh, some questions in high art music uh, and the study of popular music. And that is sort of the backdrop to this collection. Um, I've taught over the years, you know, dozens of graduate seminars uh, for musicology students at UCLA on popular music. And this 
book actually comes out of a graduate seminar we did at UCLA. Um, so it was a very successful class. And at the end of it, uh, a couple of the students came up to me and proposed that maybe we had a collection uh, that would be interesting to people because the topic was one that we found to be uh, sort of revelatory. Uh, and I'll give you the quick um, justification of the seminar, and that'll also, in some ways, begin opening up the question of why this collection. Um, the inspiration was something like this. Uh, if you were to teach a graduate seminar in musicology on classical music, uh, and you talk about a piece of piano music, you can assume that your students know how a piano works, right? They, they may not be able to play the piano, they may not be able to repair the piano, but they have a basic idea of what's inside of a piano and how it works. And the same would be true for like a French horn or an oboe or a violin. This is sort of basic knowledge. Um, but when we musicologists shifted over into talking about popular music, as we have done, it occurred to me that probably I could not count on my students to understand what's happening, say, inside an amplifier. You know, what happens between the time you plug uh, a quarter-inch patch cable into the outside of an amplifier and when the sound comes out? Uh, that's not something you learn in undergrad, or it's not something that you learn within musicology. Uh, and there are kind of really interesting questions, you know, it, it's sort of clearly obvious to most musicologists that the cultural difference between playing a work on, say, the harpsichord versus playing it on the piano uh, is important. But if you know anything about popular music production practices, or if you are a performer, if you're a player, you know that it's equally profound uh, difference of whether you decide to play using a Fender Telecaster or a Les Paul, mm -hmm. right? Two different guitars. And the, the differences between those two instruments is just so completely mysterious to within the world of academic musicology. So, it actually started off, and we may come back to this later on, as, a, as really a kind of practical seminar on how do these things work. But the ruling sort of concept was this concept of tone. Um, and that was where the seminar began, like tone in popular music. What is tone? And we can probably talk more about this, but it turns out that tone is a very complex kind of, uh, if you will, uh, transitional concept that links a lot of complicated values uh, about musicality and expressiveness and authenticity to some relatively objective material facts about how many vacuum tubes do you have in your amplifier and, you know, did you use the right strings uh, on your instrument, etc. So, yeah, that seminar turned out to be a blast. It really was. People got very heavily into it. And uh, we found that it was incredibly revelatory to deeply dig into the actual 
uh, sound generation that's coming off of uh, the motive, I don't know what you want to call the motive production of, of popular music. So we got, you know, we got, how does an amplifier work? How does analog synthesis work? Uh, can you hear the difference between various guitars? Um, you know, uh, what about, I mean, people did all sorts of things in that class. They didn't all end up in the collection we're talking about, but a few of them did. So then what was the next step? So you, you had a, a couple of your graduate students say this might be a collection. So what happened? Because that was when? 2011? Yes, it was quite a while ago. Um, yeah, so we, uh, I got pitched this by the two graduate students, and they, were, they had both written excellent papers. And, you know, we, we agreed that, you know, it would be, a doable project if the three of us worked on it. I, of course, would sort of, as a senior person, I could bring my connections to the table and uh, the, th the three of us could actually split the editorial labor. So really, when we decided to do that, um, we, we did not say, well, let's just publish all the essays from all the people's essays in the seminar as the book. What we did is we actually started from sort of scratch, like who would we like to have in this book? Who would the dream team be? Um, and uh, we basically, I think, went searching for three or four different types of people. Um, there were, okay, and I'll back up and say three or four types of people. And there were also uh, specific issues and things that I know we wanted, I knew we wanted to talk about. And um, I guess I can take those in order. Uh, we wanted, we wanted some of the people who we had read in the seminar, right? So that there's a thing that, you know, we had, I had put a syllabus together and I had put in there the, the people who had done key work on tone and timbre and popular music. And so the logical thing was, let's get those people. <laughs> and so people like Paul Tiberge, who, uh, had been working on this for decades. Um, Simon Zagorski Thomas, you know, people who have actually, uh, Cornelia fails in ethnomusicology. These are people who had been working on the question of timbre for a long time and who were on our syllabus. We picked a few, uh, essays from uh, the seminar itself. So the three ours, our essays, I had to write mine from scratch because I, of course, didn't assign myself a paper in my own <laughs> seminar. But uh, Zach and Mindy, as as I as I call them, um, both brought their own essays in, and then we went searching for people who uh, worked on a number of uh, kind of specific issues that seemed particularly important in the kind of question of tone and timbre. And let me say parenthetically, uh, this was not pitched to the publisher. It was not designed as one of those handbooks, right? So we didn't have really the aim to create a kind of uh, formal laying out of an area of study in a kind of handbook way. 
uh, we were really more looking for something that had a thesis and that had a wide range of individually interesting takes, right? So this is not like the Oxford handbook of tone and timbre in popular music. In fact, the, the fact that it has a kind of slightly fanciful title, right? And I can tell you about, we can talk about where that title came from. Uh, maybe when we talk about the introduction to the book, but the relentless pursuit of tone in a way says, no, this is not uh, a kind of handbook that covers in a systematic way, like all of the aspects of a subdiscipline. We did try to get a broad range of um, essays and people, but it's really more we were looking for individual people and individual questions that would be really interesting and suggestive. And uh, where we went looking for that is um, people who had done foundational work in timbre studies in popular music. But we also look for people who uh, had done important work on musical instruments. So one set of people are people who had uh, written very compellingly about various musical instruments. For instance, uh, Steve Waxman was a logical choice to be in this book because he's the guy who wrote the book about the electric guitar. So since that's a powerful tone maker in pop music, we wanted a collection by him. Uh, we also got some people who were writing interesting things about the voice, the, the tone and the timbre of the voice, because as it turns out, uh, we have a whole section in the book on voice, which at first might seem a little counterintuitive. You know, there's a sense when you think about tone and timbre, I think many of us think about tweaking the dot knobs and dials on an instrument or, you know, I got to improve my tone. Maybe I'll buy a different piece of, you know, buy a different guitar, but you know, your, your throat isn't really adjustable in that way. But in fact, the tone and timbre of the voice is actually some of the most um, culturally suggestive uh, stuff. And in fact, uh, the discourse around the sound of people's voices and how they re how that sound relates to the air embodiment turns out to be really powerful. So we got some people who work on voice and vocal production. We looked for people who were interested in, this is a new kind of field, which is the historical and aesthetic study of uh, sound record production. So there are people now working on uh, what you might call the art of record production. Uh, and we had some of the people really who are doing serious work on that. Uh, and then there were a few people who were working historically or working with specific artists uh, or genres, you know, so that there are, there are, in a way there were, if I were to sort of wind that up into a ball, sometimes we were looking for pioneers in the field, people who had a really interesting rap on a particular instrument, sometimes people who had spent a lot of time thinking about uh, the details of production aesthetics in the studio. And then finally, uh, people who had an interesting perspective on some kind of socio-cultural issue, often having to do with the voice. So that got us um, our group of, of contributors. Uh, then it's a very broad group. It, uh, there's there's uh, 
the my co-editors were no longer grad students by the time we started working on the book. They both graduated. Yay. Um, but we did, in fact, have at least one uh, current graduate student and then some people who are super senior, you know, who have been working for decades and decades. So it's a very diverse group um, uh, in terms of age. Uh, it's reasonably diverse in terms of discipline. So there are musicologists ethnomusicologists, uh, people who work in popular music studies. The Afterward by Simon Frith brings in someone who I guess you'd call a sort of sociologist, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it does have a certain amount of international flair, although it's really the Anglophone world. But there are a significant number of Brits in it because they do good work in popular music. So, yeah, that's that's how it all came together. I will. The last thing I'll say, there are a couple of things that I really knew I wanted in there. So I worked very hard to get an essay on auto-tune because I figured that's something everybody wanted to know about. So there were certain kind of contemporary issues. It was pretty clear we wanted something on auto-tune. Um, we definitely wanted, uh, you know, some broadness of genre and style and historical moment, right? So we've got some essays that deal with music going back to the 40s um, and 50s, some essays that are dealing with contemporary music. You know, my own essay on subwoofers really deals with stuff that's happening right now. Um, Different uh, cultures, different genres, everything from country to EDM to death metal, you know, all over the place. Okay, great. So can you, actually, I do want to know about your title. (laughs) So why don't we, why don't we go back and can you just tell us where that title came from? Because it's pretty striking. Sure. Well, um, the relentless pursuit of tone uh, is the masthead motto of of a guitar magazine called Premier Guitar. And Premier Guitar is, uh, I guess what you'd call a kind of, it's a trade journal for professional guitarists, which is also read by what they call hobbyists, right? So it's, it's it's a guitar magazine, and it's a little more serious, if you will, Uh, than the ones that you might find on typical like supermarket, at least in Hollywood, you find them typical supermarket, you know, uh, racks. So there are some very, very um, general magazines like guitar world or guitar player, but premier guitar is really read actually by professional guitarists and, and it it's motto you know, like the New York Times has all the news that's fit to print, mm-hmm. right? So the mo- the motto of Premier Guitar is the relentless pursuit of tone. So to me, this was it, it had a gr- that was the name of the seminar, you know, and I loved it because it actually it points out just how central this kind of very complex concept of tone is to the social role of being a guitarist. You know that that. That's what this magazine, which is about, you know, everything guitarists do, uh, 
So they didn't say the relentless pursuit of the right notes or something, or you know, the relentless pursuit of the C major <laughs> scale. No, it was tone. So evidently, like that's what people are worried about. And also this idea that your life as a musician would be a relentless pursuit of some receding perfection of tone, you know, that you'd never get it right, started to give a sense of how, in a way, mysterious this concept of tone is, the the, the fact that it has some ideological contradictions in it. Um, so, yeah, I stole their, their masthead motto uh, for the title of the book, because I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to signal that uh, there's something kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of Moby Dick-like about the concept of tone. You know, people people get very obsessive about it, and it it is a it's a it's a term of ideology. Uh, and if you could sort of dig into that ideology, you might have your hands on a very kind of important aspect of popular music that musicology has not up until now really done a great job dealing with. Um, one of the things that we talk about in the book, in the introduction and uh, in the afterward is uh, we're sort of at a transitional moment. It has been, if, if anybody who wrote about the question of tone and timbre in music in general, and certainly in pop music would normally start off, well, musicology doesn't have a very good language for talking about tone. We don't really know how to do this, right? It's, it's considered to be a secondary parameter as opposed to the primary parameters of pitch and then rhythm. And so as a secondary parameter, uh, it doesn't have its own analytical language. It's hard to talk about with any kind of precision and thus it doesn't get talked about as much in scholarly literature. And so there was a way that our relentless pursuit of tone also had to do with sort of musicology or our group of musicologists sort of pursuing tone as something to talk about and to sort of pin down insofar as you could. In your introduction, you say the relentless pursuit of tone seeks to bridge the gap between timbre and tone, illuminating how the materiality of sound structures cultural practice. Can you say a little bit more about this? Why is this important? Well, yeah, I, that is a, I think a very, that, that the dialectic, if you will, the dichotomy between tone and timbre uh, is actually a crucial kind of uh, structuring feature of, if you will, the larger discourse around the sound of pop music. So yeah, I mean, we spend quite a bit of time in the introduction talking first about tone and then about timbre. And uh, at one level, in a very kind of almost simple level, uh, the two words point to two sides of what we have tended to call an emergent phenomenon. So that the thing we're talking about is sort of emerges out of the interaction of a lot of different kinds of um, social structures, physics, uh, a whole network of complicated sort of concepts. And roughly speaking, the way we think of it is that tone is actually uh, well, let's go the other way. Timbre is the more sort of, if you will, scientific side of the question. So timbre becomes, in a way, the kind of thing that you could theoretically get uh, 
your hands around by looking at a spectrogram or a uh, some kind of analytical uh, measurement of the actual sound waves. This is a little confusing because in in acoustics and in in the scientific world, uh, the two terms are in the opposite relationship. If you talk to scientists, they'll say tone is literally just the then the sound waves. So you have tones and then timbre is the thing in your brain. But roughly speaking, we were thinking, okay, we didn't really worry about the sort of just pure physics of tones that people, you know, vibrations in the air. But we did talk about, okay, timbre is the way scientists talk about the emergence of some kind of structure in your mind as a perceptual structure. We can talk more about that. Tone is a socially mediated construct, right? So tone, at least in the way that it's used in guitar magazines, the thing that people are relentlessly pursuing is actually what happens when timbre and all of its complicated connections between the physical facts of acoustics and the perceptual apparatus in the mind, all that stuff then connects up with values and goals and aesthetic positions that people take in actual music making. So as a kind of cultural musicologist, which is sort of my thing, um, I'm interested in tone because to me, tone is one of those great words like swing mm-hmm. or, um, you know, that, that it, it, is inherently contradictory and there's a strong mystification discourse around it. So in the introduction, we, I, you know, I talk about, because that's, I, we wrote that in pieces. So there's a section that I wrote about the idea that, you know, people tone is sort of like a mystery. It's very mystified and people are very happy to tell you sort of weirdly Zen kind of koan type things, you know, tone is everywhere and nowhere or, <laughs> or you know like tone tone you know tone where where is tone and there you know tone is is tone in the fingers of the musician you know or is tone somehow in the devices that you hook up between your guitar and the amplifier where does the tone come from uh you know but, people go on tone quests, you know, like they, with they, um, the people analogize shopping, which is what it is. It's basically shopping for, you know, more toys to attach to your guitar, uh, as a kind of quest, like in Lord of the Rings, you know, to find the, you know, the, whatever it is, you know, the, the, the magic ring or whatever. So, so the, so tone becomes a, a very mystified concept. Uh, and, uh, thus culturally fascinating that uh, on the one level, I think I say something like this, that the word, the tone is actually just indexes the, the confusion about musicality in certain kinds of uh, popular music that tone is at one level, the way you, sh- you know, the way your expressiveness as a musician comes out, like he has an amazing tone why? Well, probably not just because he bought all this gear, 
even though the guitar magazines that talk about tone exist to sell that gear, <laughs> right? Um, they'll always back off in their editorial uh, and sort of say, well, no, you can't just buy the gear and then magically have the tone. Even although if you turn the page in the magazine, you'll see an ad that says, own your tone, you know, buy this thing and you'll own your own tone. So there's this really interesting contradiction between a pretty, a pretty serious sales pitch that says you can buy this device and have tone. Or the, so the tone is kind of an inherent property of uh, a guitar pickup or, or an effects pedal or whatever it is. And then in the editorial part of the magazine, people pulling back away from that, resisting the idea that tone can simply be purchased, that it has to have something to do with your really, really squishy concepts like musicality and, and mojo and all that stuff. So yeah, tone to my mind of the two is the socially mediated term and timbre in a sense indexes the part of the book, which really does try to deal responsibly with the psychoacoustics of musical sound. So one of the signature things I think about this collection is that it moves back and forth pretty seamlessly between culturally, uh, well, theoretical and cultural perspectives on tone as a kind of, uh, I guess, I guess a, a, I guess what I would say tone as a sort of node within a discourse. And then on the other hand, timbre as a kind of psychoacoustic reality. And so a lot of the essays, um, when they're really working will be talking about a particular genre or an artist or a track or a sound as a cultural phenomenon, what kind of meanings it accretes, how it relates to complicated structures of race, class, and gender politics. At the same time, as it's trying to pay attention to the timbral aspect, i.e. really precise description of the actual um, acoustic issues that that it, that it raises to take an example this is probably the best example uh, we have an essay in the book on twang the notion of twang in country music right and twang is like you can imagine twang is like tone if you think about what twang is um, on the one hand there can be a twang in your voice. There's a twang in your banjo. There can be a twang in the guitar. And there's a sense that, that if you understood what twang was, then you would understood what country is. And in a certain kind of ruralness, a certain way of speaking, which connects up to a whole kind of worldview, a politics, uh, probably class relationships, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, twang is an onomatopoetic word which appears to index a certain kind of attack decay structure on a stringed instrument. And so in the essay on twang, uh, Jocelyn Neal, who is one of the probably big, best, one of, one of the major experts on sort of co on country music, uh, does a spectral analysis of what a banjo note sounds like. So her, her thesis is in a way twang is a way of talking about a kind of sound, a shape of a sound that comes from the banjo, 
with its particular kind of sharp attack, quick decay. Uh, and her her essay attempts to move from that sort of timbral analysis of the banjo twang. So here is the shape of the sound, here are, are its characteristics, to the larger cultural question of what does it mean to be twangy and what kind of politics and class and race and all that stuff comes out of that. So, yeah, we at the heart of the essays is usually some um, and I'm sorry, I'm making a kind of gesture with my hands where I, you know, connect up two fingers, you know, like there's a kind of intersection or a, a, a linking up between a, a timbral set of questions, which are very technical, and then tonal questions, which are very cultural. And I think that's, if I were to pitch the collection to people who are not, you know, like psychoacousticians, that there's never going to be an essay which is just about sort of like vibrating strings and your ear and, you know, um, kind of Fourier transforms and all that. There'll be some of that in every, most of the essays, but then there'll be cultural uh, interpretation of the results. Uh, which is, yeah, I mean, that's that's why we were able to get Simon Frith to do the afterward. I mean, he, I think he was intrigued by the, the kind of social implications of tone. So in thinking about Twang or in thinking about Walmart's essay on death metal and the brutal tone of death metal, um, this relationship between tone and, let's say, authenticity in a range of genres and music scenes comes up a lot in the book. Can you say more about this? Yeah, sure. Um, I think this is sort of the tension I was talking about before, that there's a strong tension in the discourse around tone and timbre and pop music because it's so highly mediated by technology um, and because popular music is a commercial music and one of the ancillary, very commercialized parts of the popular music ecosystem is uh, instruments, right? Um, there is a strong anxiety about authentic tone, right? And uh, in some cases, and I think Zach, Zach Walmark's essay on death metal, and perhaps my own on the subwoofer, you can there is an interesting phenomenon where extremity of tone or timbre becomes a kind of um, way to buttress authenticity. So uh, what Zach points out in his death metal essay is that there are a specific set of playing techniques, uh, down-tuning the guitar very, very far, yeah, using adding lower strings below the lowest string to get this extreme sound. And there's a way in which if the sound is truly extreme, then it has a kind of authenticity. Uh, even though it's done through what you might call tricks, one of the really interesting things about Zach's essay is most of the extreme sounds that 
occur in death metal, sort of that sort of throat ripping scream that people do. <laughs> I'll spare you. I won't do it actually. Um, and you know, the kind of completely distorted kind of, you know, droning sound of the guitar. They're actually technical tricks. Like you, uh, even things like the, the kind of blasting beats of a lot of extreme metal where the drummer seems to be on methamphetamines, um, a lot of those, a lot of those are actually done with MIDI. They're actually programmed. So there's a, always this contradiction where you could you can analyze death metal as a series of, if you will, tricks. Uh, a, a really good death metal vocalist can do that sort of monster roar scream thing, and then turn around and you know drink a glass of water and just talk totally normally. It's a it's a technique. And also you can buy <laughs> the guitar, which has the lower string. You can down tune the string. You can do what those guys do and it, it can be done almost mechanically. Um, but there's something about the extremity of the sound in and of itself that gives it a kind of non-negotiable power. Right? So like, if you're a death metal guitarist and you're like, look, everybody else is tuning their guitars down to I'll pick an arbitrary note. They tune down to B and you're like, well, we tune down to a, you know, we tune down lower that you can't argue with that. And that has a kind of authenticity to it. Um, and the same thing with, uh, with the bass culture that I talk about in my, uh, essay on the subwoofer that, there's a very strong feeling that uh, the lower the bass, the more real it is. So that uh, the extreme low sounds in, uh, you know, genres like uh, dubstep, drum and bass, reggae, dancehall music, uh, the bass frequencies that are so low that you can barely hear them and that actually register more as almost touching you as a haptic experience you know there there are tricks to produce those as well you know um but yet i think people get excited and they think there's something kind of fundamentally real and authentic about just a particular kind of timbre so certain timbres uh have been given a lot of power as being authentic timbres uh I think partially because they are extreme. So yeah, that connects up Zach's essay and mine, which I, I think is a nice connection. Um, on the other hand, we do have a couple of essays where um, people are very obviously worrying about it. I guess the most classic one in this case is um, Steve Waxman, who is, you know, as, as I said earlier, sort of the guy on electric guitar um, decided to uh, do an essay for us on a very much uh, despised instrument, the uh, guitar synthesizer, <laughs> right? Which is, which is, uh, you know, it's a, a, a the, the whole problem of the guitar synthesizer, not to, A, is it's connected to a, a style of music which has real serious uh, PR problem, which is jazz fusion, you know, rock jazz fusion of the seventies and eighties. So it's a kind of music that people think of as sort of inauthentic, but 
the real problem with the guitar synthesizer is that um, it's impossible to imagine its mode of production of tone as being authentic because the guitar is simply sending MIDI signals to a computer somewhere. So you can, on the one hand, have any sound you want, right? Uh, That's the power of it, right? Theoretically, a guitarist could use his guitar and it's usually a hymn, I have to say, um, to to trigger any kind of sounds, uh, which is a powerful sort of progressivist thing to be able to do. But the problem is it seems just hopelessly inauthentic because your tone is has nothing to do with the actual instrument you're playing. So I would say that although we don't thematize this, um, there's a kind of sense that uh, if you think of your instrument as a controller, right, as a controller device, then you're far away from the kind of discourse that we're talking about in the book, where most people think of their instruments as actually having the tone in them somehow. Because the world we're talking about is the world where, you know, um, people sort of fetishize sound, and they and it's the connection of the sound to the physical objects that they are working with that gives them this kind of authenticity um, as opposed to a kind of more, um, you know, Bell Labs kind of thing where you're, you're really more interested in innovation and flexibility and kind of um, abstraction of tone. So, yeah, I mean, the physicality of tone becomes one way that it becomes authentic like this device only does one thing <laughs> and it's a physical object that's designed to do that one thing and you really can't get it to do anything else that feels like authentic and the voice you know if we want to do a little shift here the voice is probably the the primal model of that you know your your throat is really not adjustable um or you can't swap out different larynxes <laughs> to see if you can get a better sound <laughs> right you work you work with what you have so your voice is you uh and the question of voice and identity there's a whole section of the book where we separate voice out as a special kind of instrument which really connects up to identity in a very strong sense i mean tone does connect up to identity and i think guitar players when they're holding the acts that they're associated with have a kind of identity you know there's a standard thing that like you can somebody can play one note and you can tell who they are, you know, that kind of sense that their, their individuality comes through in their tone. But with voice, that's, you know, sort of the whole, uh, the whole discourse is dominated by that. That essay on uh, Jimmy Scott, um, Benita Eichheim, that one also talks a lot about voice and identity. Well, and I mean, the, we, yes, that's that whole section. I mean, it's, it's flanked by an essay by Mark Samples, which is on, if you will, the sort of intellectual property aspects of the voice, right? So we have an essay in terms where the question of do you, do you own your vocal timbre uh, and can you, can you, you can't really copyright it, but is there some legal way that you can protect it? And it turns out, yes, there have been at least one or two successful litigations where it's been legally established that 
people's identity can be, in a sense, um, counterfeited by counterfeiting their vocal tone, right? So, you know, the law now says, yes, if you copy somebody's way of singing, you in effect are uh, in, in an ad, because this is what happens. Like if you effectively, if you find someone to be a, a Bette Midler imitator or uh, imitate Carlos Santana's guitar tone uh, in an ad, uh, the, the legal strategy for trying to stop that was to say, effectively, you have stolen these people's identity, <laughs> right? And you're fooling people into thinking that these people are endorsing the product when they're not. So it's actually false advertising uh, and that legal strat. So, so yes, on the one hand, we have some, we have a nice analysis in the book of how that works, how the law has fallen out um, in terms of you being able to protect your distinctive way of singing. But of course um, the Jimmy Scott example is much more, extreme because this is a person uh who is really um they jimmy scott's identity is pretty much unique you know he uh, he does not really fit uh any of the normal gender binaries um or and especially the way those gender binaries cut through uh, singing, you know, so that we have a set of, I mean, if, if I, it's a really, really interesting essay and it's um, very characteristic of Nina's work. She's, you know, uh, she's done really serious analysis along all sorts of identity formation lines, you know, race and the like. But the thing she wrote for us is largely about kind of confusions of gender and sexuality. Uh, the point being Jimmy Scott, uh, because of a glandular disorder, you know, is biologically male, but has a voice that is actually has consistently, was consistently um, very difficult to place in terms of gender. Uh, it was too high to be a male voice, but not quite structured the same way as a female voice. It didn't really sound like a man singing in falsetto. Um, or, you know, sometimes people would analogize him to a castrato. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a literally unclassifiable voice because this is a person who's physically unique. They had a actual kind of, um, they were physically different. Uh, and what Nina analyzes in the essay is the very complex ways in which this really beautifully talented singer, because it's a unique instrument that is in that guy's throat. Plus he, he has actually, you know, turned out to have an incredible musical talent. And so his, career is a very complicated thing, right? You know, there's a way in which part, sometimes he was sort of a novelty. Um, there's a lot of complicated ways in which, because he had a very long career which spanned from the 50s into the 80s. Um, 
in the early part of his career, uh, you can see that record companies don't know how to really market this guy. And uh, there's a, there are complicated, you know, the, Nina does a really nice analysis of an album cover where she points out that like, it's not clear that how to position this man, you know, that, that he doesn't show up on the album cover sometimes so that there's a deliberate kind of confusion about, well, what is the body that connects up to this really unearthly kind of a voice that doesn't sound like any other voice. And there are situations where, uh, you know, um, Jimmy Scott is singing love songs, right, on an album, but there's three people on the album cover, like a woman and like two guys. And one of them might be him, but there has to be another guy there who's like more of a man, mm. you know, very complicated kind of stuff. Um, and then later on, uh, what's incredibly useful for Nina is that uh, Jimmy Scott becomes this sort of um, – one, at the climactic moment of the original Twin Peaks, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, this sort of haunting voice becomes, you know, a mystical symbol. So, yeah, I mean, it, you, Jimmy Scott is, on the one hand, a kind of, I don't say it's a tragic story, but it's a little bit of a tricky story in that he he was so difficult to fit into the gender and race and sexuality roles that his career was definitely stunted by that. But on the other hand, there's a kind of transcendent moment where at least one great artist, David Lynch found a way to actually um, use this slippery list of identity, this impossibly impossible to pin down vocal identity as a symbol of like the ultimate, you know, the transcendent at the end of, of Twin Peaks, you know, one of the great sort of moments of underscoring or, you know, mm. music supervision mm. <laughs> there's ever been. Can you tell us a little bit more about your chapter on bass tone? Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, my, uh, the, the working title for that chapter as I was writing it was the timbre of no timbre. Um, because what I was interested in, I mean, it came out of my work on electronic dance music. So at some very basic level, one of the distinctive timbres of dance music is that very deep sub bass. Um, and, but it's a kind of timbre that it, whose distinctive one of is a timbre one of whose distinctions is that at the bottom end, it shades off into something that you don't really hear as much as feel. At least that's the claim. Uh, so there's a way that it's a timbre that isn't a timbre uh, because it it stops being processed by the ear and starts being processed by the body. At least that's the claim. And I became fascinated by the tone aspect of this sort of non-tambral timbre if you if you know and i'll explain what i mean by that um some of what goes on in my chapter is to actually exhaustively try to talk about the the actual how those timbre how those deep low tones are produced how do subwoofers actually work um because it's a it's a technically complex thing uh and i think i'm the only one 
in the collection who actually talks about effectively a speaker as an instrument, right? So most everybody else is either talking about voice or about things that you would recognize as a musical instrument that you play. And one of the things I did was actually treat the subwoofer in the context of like a sound system, like a Jamaican sound system or as an instrument. And one of the things that I found to be really kind of cool was if you go and do the research on how sound systems are actually constructed, uh, there's a very, and I'm going to use the air quotes, imagine air quotes in your mind, musical. uh, There's a very musical way of thinking about the deepest bass register. Uh, I actually analogized it to orchestration, you know, what composers do when they layer different kinds of instruments. So uh, if you're listening to a big sort of EDM sound system out in a field somewhere, you're probably listening to eight, 16 different subwoofers of probably three or four different types, each of which has a particular kind of frequency response and a strength and a weakness. And they're combined together to create a kind of, um, to cover various ranges in this deepest space register. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in that essay talking about how subwoofers are built, the different types of them, where in the space below 100 Hertz down to the bottom of hearing range, which is somewhere around like 15, 18 Hertz, um, each speaker works and how you would create a kind of for various different genres, how you would create the bass sound you want. So on the one hand, there's that sort of technical stuff, but um, my essay also deals with what we would call like the tone aspect, sort of like the discourse around deep bass. Cause there's a lot of very, um, let's just say very dramatic claims made for the political power of deep bass. It's kind of like, as I said, it's like um, the kind of discourse around extremity in metal, right? So that the the deeper the bass and the heavier the bass, the more real it seems to people. So there's a kind of way in which uh, you get people talking about um, bass culture and effectively claiming that... Um, very deep bass frequencies are more real. They're more interesting. They're more politically resistant than sort of boring frequencies in the mid range of the spectrum. So I, that's what you might, I mean, uh, some people actually even talk about a politics of frequency, you know, that depending on where you are in the frequency spectrum of our hearing, you have a kind of political implication and base you know base is like power you know and it's also uh kind of uh it's connected up to all kinds of complicated and slightly problematic ideas about africa and resistance and and you know kind of uh dystopian sort of power fantasies and the like utopian and dystopian power fantasies so just as in the introduction, we spent a certain amount of time deconstructing the ideology of guitar tone, showing how it was contradictory, that it's important that it both be something that's inherent to you, but also something you can buy, 
<laughs> you know, uh, the question of deep bass in, in dance music. On the one hand, it is um, fetishized almost as kind of much more real than other kinds of frequencies. But, you know, when you actually come to examine how the deepest bass frequencies work, a lot of the fantasies about bass culture sort of evaporate. You know, for instance, I want to reassure anyone who's listening to this podcast, it's not possible to find a very loud, low frequency that will cause your colon to spasm and create the brown sound okay i've done the re i've done the research and i can reassure you that does not happen one of the things i found is that um like when you feel the bass all over your body you think oh wow it's vibrating my whole body it's not it's actually vibrating only the top millimeter of your skin right so the the the, the, the whole body sensation of bass hitting you it turns out the research has been done. If you want to, if you want to be a hard ass, you can read uh, um, the Journal of Low Frequency Noise, which is you know not one of the most exciting journals, but it has a lot of good information in it. Uh, people do research where they actually have sort of shown when you hit people with low bass from big subwoofers, yes, it does. You do get a whole body what you would call haptic kind of tactile experience, but it does not penetrate even a half an inch into your body. It's all about your skin being moved very so slightly by the sound waves. So this whole notion that somehow you're being vibrated through, um, your whole body is being kind of stirred up is a fantasy. Um, so I spent, I, I, to me, that's in some, it, it, it does connect up nicely with other places where tone becomes a kind of mystery or magic word, which tries to do all this negotiation between how sounds are actually made and what they're supposed to do in the world, right? And, and their kind of power culturally. So yeah, I got very heavily into it. And uh, I think I'm, yeah, I, I may follow that up some. Were there any major surprises in any of the essays that you read? Did you learn anything unexpected? Well, I would have to say, I mean, I almost in every case, I would say one of the big surprises was in the auto-tune essay itself. Uh, Catherine Provenzano is a really um, a very, very smart uh Young, young scholar uh, working to finish up her dissertation. And she, she took what you might call an ethnographic approach towards auto-tune, um, where she, of course, learned about the actual software because the because the focus on auto-tune is usually a focus about de- about sort of de-skilling and automation right and and sort of a kind of robot future that auto-tune is a piece of software that turns everybody into a robot and kind of destroys the skill of musicianship now anybody can pretend to sing and it you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what the two things that you learn from Catherine's article is one, 
when you're when you're aware of auto tune in other words when you go oh wow listen to that auto tune you're aware of the tip of the iceberg right basically for every track that you where you can hear that strong auto tune there's thousands of tracks where auto tune was used but you can't hear it so uh there one of the things is that no that that there's a whole culture of people who use auto tune in such a way as to make it completely invisible and that that is considered to be a highly skilled professional talent so the so the the thing that was surprising is that uh auto tune seems to stand in people's minds for the demusicalization of music right now the mu- you know this the algorithm now makes everything musical but that's not the way people think about it in the business in fact to be a skilled auto-tune engineer and to be able to use the software uh, is actually a kind of musicality. So I found that to be very interesting. Uh, that that And her essay actually does a wonderful thing where uh, she takes the example of T-Pain, who became sort of the whipping boy for the auto-tune effect, and shows, again, this kind of idea that it's about tone i.e it's about ideology and race class and all that stuff that she ends her essay with the sort of recuperation of t-pain uh by npr he does a tiny desk concert where he sings in his real voice and suddenly all is forgiven right so that this kind of notion that um that after and what's interesting is after you've read her whole essay and you realize oh no you know music it is not about the elimination of musical labor it's about the redistribution mm-hmm. of musical labor there has to be somebody who knows how to make how to get the pitches right uh it's just shifting from one set of musicians to another uh, then there's a poignancy about t pain sort of taking his power back uh and showing that uh, yes, I can actually sing. And then people were like, oh, I get it. So all that auto-tune stuff was then a kind of progressive electronic <laughs> music thing. And yeah, so so yeah, the, the, the essay on auto-tune had some really nice flips in it. And as I said earlier, I, I knew I wanted something on auto-tune because when we were thinking about putting the book together, that was right at the heart of the kind of auto-tune you know, uh, mm-hmm. scandal, shall we say? Uh, I'm trying to think if there's another one that that really um, flips things very intensively. No, I think that was probably the most surprising one. Um, I I will say I was a little surprised by what I found. I mean, I uh, I surprised myself <laughs> uh, in, in the idea that 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 uh, most of what I thought, what you tend to think about the physicality of deep bass, sub bass reverberations, turns out to be not true. Like it's a lot of fantasy, and in fact, there's a huge amount of. Uh, a lot, a huge superstructure built up on very, very small physical effects. So, yeah. In the afterword, Simon Frith responds to the assertion that you make in the intro about the impact of tone on culture as follows, quote, the point is not just that, 
quote, the materiality of sound structures, cultural practice, unquote, but also that the cultural practice of sound making structures what we hear and what we mean by the materiality of sound. What do you make of his response? Well, I, I mean, the afterward, his afterward is to my mind, uh, it's why you want to buy the book. Um, it, he does what you're supposed to do in an afterword, which is he reacts to all of um, the essays and sort of uh, effectively the book comes with its own review, <laughs> which is nice. So, and, um, but yes, he's hit one of his perspectives is as, you know, somebody who comes from more of the British, uh, you know, popular music sociology side, the sort of Birmingham school type, stuff. And so I think for him that's that reversal it's it's really about we're all traversing the same kind of path but the question of where you start and where you end up uh I think defines your disciplinarity. So you know because this book is put together by musicologists uh culturally interested musicologists, but musicologists nonetheless, um, it tends to start from some sonic phenomenon, right? And I guess in a sense, then whether we consciously are meant to do this or not, that gives you a certain causal chain where, yes, you're sort of doing sonic determinism, that certain sounds can be made by these objects, and then that sort of determines a kind of cultural um, field or cultural sort of effects. And we sort of, we did, I think because at some, at least one of the co-editors, Zach is very heavily into, uh, in his own work, uh, the kind of, uh, psychoacoustics of sound. This is one of the things he works on. Uh, we did sort of think that, yes, effectively you're beginning with, timbre moving through tone and ultimately getting to sort of culture. So what you hear determines what you think. And I think Simon very correctly, um, you know, points out that something we all would assent to, which is that, uh, just as with sort of like the linguistic turn, like what you think determines what you can hear you know, which is completely true. So that, uh, and I, and I think that, that he's, uh, and I, I tell you, of course, because, you know, one reacts to the sound of one's own name. Right. I mean, I remember quite clearly what he said about my essay, which, which I thought was, you know, which I thought was actually very sent, you know, he pointed out that, yeah, effectively, um, I had chosen to, um, to, ar- you know, I, I was arguing that, how would I put this? That, that basically um, people were hearing kind of phantom effects. That that they knew what they wanted the sub bass to do or be, and that actually determines their understanding of what the musical material is. Because when I actually went in from the other side through like very very kind of dry audio engineering stuff and psychoacoustics, I found out that all the things that people thought were there are literally not there. 
you know, that like, Ooh, this effect that happens. No, actually it doesn't, you know, like the, the infamous Brown sound, right? Like the fantasies about what the sound can do to you, like what's materially happening are actually determined culturally before you even hear anything. So, yeah, I, I think that that perspective is very useful, and I think it probably indexes the difference between somebody who effectively is 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 coming at music from a sociological social science perspective a, a kind of you know uh that music is a certain does a certain kind of work in culture um music is a thing that you do uh and it is probably true that Simon although I think he really liked the book in general, we're, we're grateful for that, um, was picking out of it the moments where we were actually critiquing some of our own, our, our essays turn out to be a form of self-critique where, although we all, I think, started with, hey, sound is really interesting and musical sound in, in its organized form is really cool. Let's start there, see what's, quote, really going on and then that'll give us a sense of how to understand the cultural formations that are built on top of it. And, you know, I think Simon's pointing out that there's a certain amount of foundationalism there. Like you're assuming that you're, you're, that you can get a kind of unambiguous kind of scientific understanding of how sounds work on you, how timbre works. Uh, when in fact, uh, you cannot, you know, you cannot hear these sounds outside of culture. So uh, I thought that was, you know, it's a really nice kind of uh, framing thing that he does at the end there. Well, Robert, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I have a final question for you. What are you working on now? Well, um, one of the things that I am working on is uh, – it's it's a tragic thing when you're the editor of the collection and you have to cut your own essay by large numbers of words. Because uh, I got so into the subwoofer thing that, uh, and the larger question of the loudspeaker, uh, that uh, one of the things I, I'm interested in doing is uh, perhaps uh, I recently became aware through an interview on this network. So that's a pitch for listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh that there is a series called Object Lessons uh, out of the Atlantic and Bloomsbury where people write, you know, about an object. And it seemed to me that this, my take on the subwoofer for this book was actually a kind of, it had a certain kind of ideological take about, um, uh, about this notion of tone. In other words, the kind of cultural notion of tone. But it seems to me to talk about subwoofers as objects would be, a really kind of interesting uh, possibility uh, because they are fascinating objects. And this would be to some extent to pick up Simon's point and say, well, like let's, let's actually just talk about these things, these tools that allow people to do things, kind of the affordances. So I'm, I'm thinking about maybe uh, trying to uh, use some of the words that got left on the table and maybe uh, scratch my itch to really talk just about subwoofers as objects and as a kind of culturally powerful object that, you know, index, uh, you know, it, it, the shortest version of this, and this is, this is a, this is a work in progress is you could, 
there have been some very interesting studies of the Walkman and personal stereo, right? And the earbud speaker as a kind of icon of convenience and portability. Well, the subwoofer is the opposite of all that, right? It's if the earbud speakers are efficient and convenient, you know, subwoofers are wasteful and inconvenient and they, they are sort of, they connect up to a social experience of music, which is the opposite of the kind of atomized listening of the personal stereo. So uh, I'm playing around with that. Uh, there are other projects uh, on the docket that are more uh, sort of, if you will, my day job, uh, which is to do kind of structural analysis of popular music. I have a couple of projects floating around. Um, I'm interested in uh, working on uh the not so much uh, working on the DJ set as a kind of aesthetic object. Um, I teach a course on the history of electronic dance music. It's always been tempting uh, to think, well, is there a book to be written about EDM? A number of people have done it, but I found myself more interested in saying, maybe I want to actually concentrate on, if you will, what is the question of a work or a thing that you can talk about in this history. And it seems to me that in my teaching, some of the most exciting moments is talking about the structure of a whole DJ set. Don't do it very often, but when you do do it, it is uh, a very powerful kind of analytical uh, question. And so it occurred to me that it, I might try to find a finite number of historically important DJ sets and uh, do what I would say is a kind of old-fashioned musicology on them. In other words, to treat them like albums or like symphonies and really ask how they are put together. Because and that would be a kind of a self-consciously retro thing to do. So I'm playing around with some issues in electronic music uh, and uh, seeing where those things go. Well, Robert, these sound like great projects. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye.